first step in recovery from any addiction is to admit that you are addicted. This is like the first step of the uh, Alcoholic Anonymous uh, 12-step uh, process. And no, I've never been an alcoholic or drug addict or anything like that. But I'm going to make an admission here. I was a politician. Now, when I say I was a politician, it, it sounds like a bad word, right? So I, I had to go to the dictionary definition. I went to the Merriam-Webster uh, definition, and, and there are two definitions there, or, or even three. Uh, one is a person experienced in the art of science and government, the science of government, um, especially one actively engaged in conducting the business of a government. Now, that doesn't sound bad, right? That, that sounds good. Uh, then there is the second definition, or 2A, a person engaged in party politics as a profession. Still doesn't sound bad. But there comes uh, 2B, the definition 2B, often disparaging, this is the warning, a person primarily interested in political office for selfish or other narrow, usually short-sighted reasons. So if I ask you, how would you define politician? You're going to go for the last definition, right? Somebody who's doing it for selfish uh, reasons. Um, and if I ask you today, who do you trust the most and who do you trust the least? Where would politicians rank? Now, I, I'm, I think I already know where you're going to say it, but let's look at some data. Let's look at some statistics. You know that I like statistics. So I went to Statista. Uh, they did a global survey, a global study in October of 2021. And they asked about the most and least trusted people in the world. Okay. Um, and what they did, the numbers I'm going to read to you here are actually the the this the the, the the uh difference between those people who say that this type of person is trustworthy minus those who say that they're not so for example doctors were at the top 54% so there's 54% more people who said that they are trustworthy versus those who thought that they're not Okay, so this could be like 64 to 10 or, or something like that. I don't remember what the number was. Scientists, 51% positive. Teachers, 43% positive. Ordinary people, ordinary, just people in general, 27%. That's pretty consistent with, uh, with what I found with my own uh, study, that, that we tend to believe that people are more trusted, Armed forces, 22%. Kind of interesting. I would expect uh, soldiers and armed forces in general to be higher. Let's look at the negatives. Ones where more people said that they are not trustworthy than people who said that they are trustworthy. Journalists, minus 10%. We're not talking about media. We're talking about the journalists themselves. Bankers, minus 11%. Ed executives, minus 22%. Government ministers, that's probably a British definition, minus 39%. And politicians in general, minus 52%. Minus 52%. So if I take the 100% of people who said that politicians are trusted versus politicians are not trusted, um, the first number is going to be 52% lower than the second one. 
uh, Pew Research, PEW Research, did their own research on the level of trust, the, the public trust that we have in government in general. 1964 was kind of the peak uh, in, in the years that they counted, uh, which I think was 1959. 1964 was the highest. 1959, by the way, was still over 70%. Uh, 1964, the peak was 77%. 77% of people trusted the government. The president at that time was LBJ. Lyndon B. Johnson. That number started going down and down and down. It was pretty low in 1980. Went a little up uh, in the late 80s, mid 80s, late 80s. Uh, down in uh, 95. Up uh, during uh, uh, George W. Bush um, in the early 2000s. Um, kept going down and, and it kept going down since then. The lowest in any individual poll was in 2011. 10% said in an individual poll said that, uh, or I'm sorry, the level of trust in in government in an individual poll was 10%. The moving average was 17% though. Uh, so it was kind of compensated by polls, specifically the year before 2010. Um, but today it's at the lowest um, it's, it's at 16%. We're at 16%, um, trust in government. Gallup conducted the survey in September of 2023. That's, that's pretty recent. And by the way, in the article that I will publish based on this, uh, episode, I will, um, provide the links to all of those, uh, studies. Uh, and, and they asked about the current versus all time low trust rating for U S government institutions and actors. This is not global. This is, uh, U uh, S the questions asked was how much trust and confidence do you have in here are the interesting numbers, men and women in political life, 40%. The executive branch, 41%. The American people, we trust the American people, 55%. Again, pretty consistent with other numbers that I saw and, and I found myself. Uh, judicial branch, uh, 49%. The legislative branch, uh, 32%. Your local government actually higher, 67%. Mainly because for the most part, it's uh, nonpartisan. Uh, federal government, uh, international problems, 44%. Your state government, 59%, uh, somewhere between uh, federal and uh, local. But the men and women in political life, 40%. In this episode, I will discuss the reasons that we trust politicians so little. Again, from the perspective of my relative trust model. Right after this. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? Well, time to start uh, after this uh, long introduction. Um, I, I'm going to give you different aspects of why I believe we trust politicians so little. 
And I'm going to throw in my own personal stories and uh, and my own personal beliefs. I'm going to start with one, and that is I trust politicians that serve in the military, that, that had significant service in the military. The, the component that this applies to is personality compatibility. Because I served in the military, I know what they went through. I know I, I have a lot of things in common with them. Uh, there is something about a person that at some point in his or her life wrote a check uh, payable to the U.S. government to an amount up to and including their own life. There is something about a person like that in their commitment to the United States of America. Okay? Uh, not to the party. They, they never signed that check to the party. They signed that check to the United States of America. One of those heroes is Sam Johnson, former Representative uh, Sam Johnson, uh, U.S. Congress Representative, District 3 in Texas. Uh, what I want to do is, I, I actually need to tell you that uh, Sam Johnson was kind enough to write the introduction for my book, uh, The Book of Trust. Um, and we did that in 2020. He he wrote the introduction. I included the introduction in January of 2020. The book actually came out. And uh, I gave him a few of the copies. Uh, we talked a little more. Um, and unfortunately, uh, three week, uh, three months later, he passed away at the age of 89. And what I wanted to do is not, not read his introduction, but really read what I wrote about him in the book right after his introduction, his forward to the book. Sam Johnson served as a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot during the Korean and Vietnam Wars and commanded the 31st Tactical Fighter Wing. Between the wars, he was a Top Gun instructor and an Air Force Thunderbirds pilot. Colonel Johnson was shot down over North Vietnam and spent seven years as a prisoner of war at the Hanoi Hilton. Which, you know, for those of you who don't know, it's it's a nickname for a, 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 you know, a POW camp. It's not really part of the Hilton chain. For his service, uh, he received two silver stars, a bronze star, Legion of Merit, Distinguished Flying Cross, two Purple Hearts, and many more military awards. He served as a U.S. congressman for 27 years until his retirement in 2019. You can read about his POW experience and more in his book, Captive Warriors, a Vietnam POW story. I, I read that book, by the way. Four months uh, after the first edition of the, the Book of Trust came out in print, Sam Johnson passed away at the age of 89. He was honored with a full military honors funeral and a missing men formation flight by the Air Force Thunderbirds. May he rest in peace. So a politician like Sam Johnson is someone that I would trust. And I would trust mainly because I know what they went through being a military personnel, uh, specifically in combat duties. But not all of them are. In fact, fewer and fewer are. Uh, just like fewer and fewer of the American people are serving uh, or veterans, uh, military veterans. So what happens well, one thing that's happening right now that we can see is we're in primaries. We're in primary um, season. And even though we have the first um, the first term of a Democratic president, which 
kind of means that he's going to be running again uh, for re-election, which he already announced. But but he does have uh, a contender, or at least one that that I know of. But for the most part, the party that's not that doesn't have a first uh, term president is the one that's running the uh, more uh, I'll call it uh, contentious uh, primaries. And right now it's the Republican Party. And you need to hear about how you need to hear how they talk about each other. Now, I, I have to go back to 2008. 2008 was actually after a two term president, uh, George W. Bush. Uh, and in 2008, uh, both parties had primaries, completely open primaries, because the a sitting president after two uh, after two terms cannot run for a third term. Uh, term. The last time, the only time this happened was with uh, FDR Roosevelt, uh, and and he actually passed away a year into his third term. But after that, uh, that that was taken off. So, uh, two thousand eight, uh, and and again, I'm I'm going to talk about. Uh, I'm going to talk about a town hall meeting that was attended by John McCain. Uh, he was running for president on behalf of the Republican Party. And it was in October 10th of 2008, town hall event, Lakeville, Minnesota. And a constituent, uh, a woman, told McCain, she, she stood up, uh, this was time to ask questions. And she said that uh, she can't trust Obama. And she called him an Arab. Uh, and, you know, th this is uh, at the time when uh, there were claims that uh, he was born in Hawaii. W was he naturally born American citizen is required and so on. Uh, but, but anyway, she, she stands up there. Now, remember that John McCain is running against Barack Obama. And he stops her. And he says, this is a direct quote, no ma'am, he's a decent family man, citizen, and I just happen to have disagreement with on fundamental issues. And that's what this campaign is about. That's what he told her. We don't see it anymore. Now, mind you, we're talking about cross-party here. This is who he's running against. You know, I'm I'm going to take it back to to my own personal lives, and and this is I'm I'm not trying to brag. I'm 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 telling you this story because because it happened. You know, a friend of mine once said, "You're not bragging if it really happened." I ran for office in 2013. I ran for the uh, board of uh, our uh, independent school district, a uh, school district with over 50,000 students at the time, uh, 7,000, actually the biggest employer in in town. And uh, I ran against uh, someone by the name of Marilyn Hinton. Now, um, we were from opposite parties, which shouldn't have mattered because this was really a nonpartisan. The local elections, at least here, are nonpartisan. Uh, her name was Marilyn Hinton, and we ran against each other respectfully. I never said anything bad about her. She never said anything bad about me. She won the election. She was the incumbent at the time. She won the election. I lost in 2013. But I didn't stop. I ran again in 2015, two years later. 
So what we have is we have alternate years for different seats uh, on, on the board. So four seats are up for election in one year and two years later, another four seats. The terms are four years. So I ran in 2015, not running against her because she won in 2013. So she was uh, not going to be up for election at least until 2017. 2015, I won and I became a board member. 2017, she ran again and lost um, and left the board. But during her retirement party or, or event, somebody asked her an interesting question. They asked her, how was it to serve with Yoram, me, for two years between 2015 and 27, 2015, when I got on the board in 2017, when she got off the board, how was it to serve with him on that board? I mean, knowing that you um, were uh, competing with each other. And, and again, I'll remind you that it was very, very respectful. I never said anything negative about her. She never said anything negative about me. And what she described actually brought tears to my eyes and I'm going to get emotional telling you this story now, probably. She took us back to a, um, I think it was the last um, graduations, the graduation that we had. I think it was the 2016 graduation um, or, or maybe even the 2017 graduation. And and what happens was in, in, in our city, we have uh, just about or had just over 4,000 graduates in, in one, in, in every graduation every year, uh, from three major or three, uh, senior high schools. And so, um, it's, it's a very full day where we stand, the board gets on stage and we shake hands and, um, and, um, you know, if you think about the fact that we're seven, there's seven of us, each one of us is probably going to shake about, I don't know, 600 hands, if not more. And Marilyn was having some health issues and, and it was hard for her. She did as much as she could. She would not miss it for the world. And, and so we had the morning graduation. Then we had the uh, midday graduation. Then we had... Uh, the end, uh, the evening graduation. Evening graduation, by the time we're done, it's already 10 p.m. And at about 10 p.m., everybody else on the board and, and administration, they just evaporated. You know, it's a long day. I get it. It's a hard day. Uh, but they evaporated. And, and I stayed with Marilyn. And uh I, I asked her, how are you getting home? She said, somebody's picking me up. I said, okay, um, I'll wait with you. I'll, I'll help you get there. And she goes, no, the, the, just just leave, you know, go home. And, and uh, the way she described, which is true, I didn't leave her side until she got into the car that took her home. And so she told that story. To answer the question, how was it to serve with someone who you ran against in 2013? But we don't see it today. I mean, I'm, I'm listening to the primaries, to the uh, Republican primaries right now, and the way they talk about each other. And, and I remember the pri the primaries, the the uh, and, and both sides. 
you know, when Joe Biden was uh, was running in, in the primaries against who now is his vice president and others, the way they were talking about him and the way the, the Republicans talk about each other and how they lie and, uh, you know, making names for each other, uh, derogatory names. I mean, not not fun nicknames. And here's the thing. They think that at the end, once this is done and the primaries are down to one candidate that gets the, uh, the nomination of the party, we're going to forget what they said about each other. So how do you want me to trust the person who ends up being the nominee after everything you said about them? You know, the campaigning today becomes more on the other person's flaws than what you bring, why you are a better uh, candidate. It's about why they are not the better candidate, why they should not be the president or, or any other position for that matter. So the first thing is you have discredited their competence. So now I'm supposed to vote for someone after their peers from the same party trashed their names and told us how incompetent that person would be. Am I supposed to forget that? So now you kind of killed the competence of, or my perception of the competence of the person who ends up being the, uh, the, pop, the party nominee, because nobody, nobody gets a free pass in, in those, uh, um, in those polls, in, in those campaigns, in the town halls, in the debates, nobody gets a free pass. Everybody gets trashed. So now I believe I look at the stage and I know that everyone there on that stage is incompetent because the others told me that. Or did they lie? So now I don't trust them because they lie. Now I don't trust them because what they do and the way they do it violates another component of my relative trust model. And that's the no BS component. So there was BS there. And now all of a sudden, the one that did not win, that becomes the vice president or the secretary of state or the secretary of transportation or whatever you have, now all of a sudden they speak positively about the nominee. So the time from the party nomination until the election, everybody in this party rallies behind the nominee and they sing their praises as if we forgot what they said about them during the primaries. So how do you want me to trust those politicians that did not win in this turnaround that they made? Were they lying before or are they lying now? But I'll tell you one thing, they were lying at some point. And, and I think one of the best examples was, uh, well, the story of George Santos. Talk about lying. And, and I'm quoting here from a New York Intelligencer's December 1st, 2023 article. Okay, so this is direct quotes 
of things that they believe that he lied about. Lied to donors, used their money to make purchases at Hermes and OnlyFans. Not sure what OnlyFans is. He used campaign money. Okay, I know what it is. I don't have an account, though. He used campaign money for personal travel and Botox. Allegedly lied to collect unemployment benefits. Allegedly committed identity theft. Lied to Congress. Reimbursed himself for loans that he did not make. Uh, lied about where he went to high school and college. Never worked for Wall Street uh, on Wall Street either. Never founded an animal, shalt, uh, an animal charity. And so on. There's a long list. I'm, I'm not going to go through this list. But when a politician does that, this is the problem. It starts generalizing. Well, if it was only one, then then maybe we can focus it and say this is a politician we don't trust. But when it happens more than once, then we start generalizing it. And guess what? It hurts. It hurts our trustfulness for the entire class that we call politicians. I think one of the other uh, things that, that cause us to trust politicians less is making pledges. You know, um, I remember when I ran, I, I was asked to uh, make a pledge and um, I told them I, I don't do pledges. And the pledge was specifically by an organization that was uh, focused on fiscal fiscal conservatism so how do we save money because uh, public schools are funded by by property taxes uh here in texas and and i said i, I don't make pledges and it, it was kind of uh, the, the person interviewing me had this look of confusion he says but but we can't endorse you if if you're not going to make pledges and i said well here's the thing what is the pledge you want me to make the pledge they wanted me to make is that i will never support creating a new tax and I said, well, let me ask you a question. What would happen if we create, we decide to create a new tax by eliminating two other taxes, overall reducing the tax liability? And he said, well, then in this case, uh, we want you to support it. But, but I said, but you just asked me to give you a pledge that's very specific that I will never support creation of a new tax. I said, look, I'm going to be screwed either way. What happens if I make a pledge and reality changes? Circumstances change. I got two, two options. One, I keep my pledge even though it does not apply to the new situation, therefore making a bad decision, I'm screwed. Or alternatively, I break my pledge, I make the decision the way it should be done given the new circumstances, in which case, again, I broke my pledge to you the way it was worded, and I'm screwed again. I'm screwed either way. That's why I don't make pledges. I said, but here's what I do. Instead of making pledges, I'm going to tell you what my values are, because my values drive my decisions. They drive the way I vote. And I have four values with respect to the school district board that I was running for. And, and I'm going to tell you what they are just, you know, for to complete the story. Um, 
there is something called the achievement gap. And the achievement gap, for lack of a better definition, is the gap in performance between students of two different um, ethnical, economic, demographic groups, okay? And for the lack of better definition, again, typically it's white versus black or non-white or Hispanic. Or. So we make the definition, we, we decide up front that, that some students, because they belong to a certain demographic group, are disadvantaged, while others, because they belong to another demographic group, are advantaged. And because of that, we're going to give one group uh, support that we don't give to the other group, even though the other group does have students that uh, do need that support, and they're not going to get it because of the, uh, the demographic group they belong to. And the first group that does get the support has members that don't need that support or shouldn't be treated as such that need their support. So I said, to me, the achievement gap is not the gap between two demographic, not the performance gap, uh, gap between two demographic groups. In our district, we have 55,185 achievement gaps. And those achievement gaps are the gaps between every single student's performance and potential. Our job is not to put a label, a demographic label on anyone, and based on that, give them the support, but actually strive towards seeing what their potential and what their performance, actual performance is, and close that gap. That's one of my values. Second value, I'm running, if I get elected, the day I get off the board, at the end, I want to leave the district in a better place than the day I got on the board. That's a value. Uh, the third one was that I want to raise a generation that is ethical, patriotic, and gives more than it takes. You, you know, I was interviewed once by a student, a high school student. Um, she wanted to know about the bond, but at some point we, we somehow got to talk about values. And, and I shared with her my four values. I didn't give you the fourth one yet. I, I, I'm not going to forget. Don't worry. It's, it's written. But when we got to this, and, and I said, I want to raise a generation that is ethical, patriotic, and gives more than it takes, she asked, what do you mean? Now, where she was interviewing me was uh, in her high school, her senior high school. And we were sitting by the fountain. Uh, the, there's a little lake there. And I asked her, you know the name Casey Joyce? Nope, never heard. Have you ever heard of the phrase Black Hawk Down? Never heard of that either. It, it happened before she was born. And I said, well, Sergeant Casey Joyce, Army Ranger, was killed in Mogadishu in what ended up being the movie Black Hawk Down. He... He didn't die for selfish reasons. He died for the men standing next to him. He died for the values that sent him there. The values that drove the army and, and our military in general. She said, why are you telling me this? I said, well, because if you walk back to building D or from building D to building A, Right before you hit the stairs, you're going to see a little plaque on the grass with his name, Sergeant Casey Joyce, because he was 
a graduate of this school. So my third value was I want to raise a generation that is ethical, patriotic, and gives more than you take. My fourth one was uh, there is the if you join school boards, one one of the things that I notice a lot is that they become this this little team, uh, and and they act together as one. And I said, uh, my fourth value is that I will always remember that I was not elected by the Texas Education uh, Agency. I was not elected by the Texas Association of School Boards. I was not invited to the board by the other board member. I was elected by 3,797 people who checked my name, the box next to my name on the ballot. And I represent them. I will never forget that. But I also represent all the stakeholders in the district, whether they agree with me or voted for me or not. Those are my four values. I don't make pledges. Based on those values, I will make decisions. You like my values? Endorse me, support me, vote for me. You don't? Don't. But I'm not going to make pledges. They ended up endorsing me and I ended up winning that election. Um. You know, one other thing that happens with pledges is that uh, politicians make promises that they can't keep. I mean, how many times did you hear that promise? On day one, I will do this. And so what's behind? I mean, do you not really know that you can't? That you can't do that without the support of Congress or whatever legislature that, that you're going to be part of? Do you really not know that, that you need that? Do you really not know that you're not going to be able to achieve it? Is it really a fake it until you make it type thing? I'm going to keep saying that I'm going to make it and uh, that, that I'm going to make it knowing that I won't, but eventually I will. They don't keep their promises. And if they don't keep their promises, they fall under the personality compatibility component. They fall under the... Um, Competence component, they fall under the no BS component, all, all three of them. They fail them because they make promises that they can keep. And the worst part of it is that I believe they know they're not going to be able to make it. And they still make those promises. They still make those pledges that they eventually can't keep. I think another problem that I have with, with pledges today is that our values seem to be too absolute. And when values are so absolute, it's kind of hard to support them. And, and I'm just going to give two examples, you know, abortion rights and guns, gun violence. You know, on abortion, there are only two sides to the, to the uh, formula or, or whatever. Either it's the right to live, which means every from the moment of conception, you cannot have an abortion, no matter why. And, and there was a case just recently here in Texas where a woman who wanted to get pregnant wasn't raped, wasn't, wasn't that she didn't want to get pregnant. She wanted to get pregnant. She celebrated her pregnancy to find that, based on doctors' opinions, that this baby is not going to survive and this baby actually puts her in danger, life danger, danger to her life, and, and, and at least danger to the possibility that she's going to have another baby. She wanted to have an abortion. She ended up having to go to another state to have that abortion. I, I don't know how the story ended. 
And then the flip side is uh, being very loose on abortion. It's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. I don't have to consider the fact that there is a baby, a living baby inside me. Our values are too absolute. We we don't leave enough for uh, haggling room. We don't leave enough for the, the nuances of life. Same with guns, gun control. I mean, there, there are two sides. Either we ban guns, period, or everyone can have gun, whatever gun, whenever, and 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 whatever. And, and the 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 right answer is somewhere in between. You, you know, I I don't know if I can I, I'll. I'll say it anyway. Uh, I'm, I'm a very strong supporter of the Second Amendment. The reason that I support the Second Amendment, the Second Amendment says that I have the right to bear arms and form a militia. Uh, and, and really, it's to protect myself from the arbitrary hand of the government. Now, if that's what's behind my right to carry arms, to bear arms, then we're not talking about guns. In order to protect myself from the government, I must have access to the same weapons that the government has, which includes, in our United States of America, nuclear weapons. I need to be able to park an aircraft carrier in my backyard pool. And the reason I'm such a strong supporter of the Second Amendment because I can I believe that this is the only way I would be able to ever buy an F-18. I want an F-18. Okay. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic here, but you get the point. Our values are too absolute. And because our values are absolute, it makes it hard to trust people uh, because you know that they're not going to reach any agreement if if they're so polarized well since i brought up uh the word political or the term political polarization i'll go back to gallup um in in their same september uh 2023 uh survey they asked uh they asked both democrats and republicans on uh their uh, the level of trust that they have in different institutions, political institutions. Now, this is interesting, and I'll show you why why it's interesting. First, because there was a line there that asked about your trust in the American people. 58% of Democrats, 54% of independents, 55% of Republicans trust the American people. That's a very narrow gap. That's pretty right there in the middle. Your local government, the gap is very small, 4.73% Democrats, 64% Independents, 69% Republicans. That's a very high level of trust. Guess what happens when we go to uh, your federal government, uh, both domestic and international uh, problems, and the executive branch? The executive branch is the worst. Democrats trust it, 83%. Okay, you're thinking, that's not bad. Republicans, 9%. Independents, 37%. There's a gap of 74%. Why? Because right now we have a Democratic executive branch. What do you think would happen if we had a Republican 
then Democrats will be at 9% and Republicans would be at 83%. This is the political polarization we have. But, but this is the political polarization that we have when we decide whether we trust our representatives. MIT did a study in 2015 when they counted the votes or I should say cross-party agreements in, in roll call votes and they counted roll call votes. In 1977, that was one of the highest numbers. Uh, it was about 13,000. 13,000 agreements across party lines in roll call votes. 2007, 30 years later, number of roll call votes went up 75%. The agreements went from 13,000 to 181. We are so polarized. And, and we're so polarized that we're not really trying to solve problems. You know, I talked about making decisions and I talked about uh, getting a majority versus getting a consensus. And what you see right now is that all they're trying to do in, in every vote is get majority, not consensus, not something that's good for the American people. It's something that's good for their party. Again, where does that stand on personality compatibility or on um, the no BS component? Very low. Here's the thing. With the pledges, with the political polarization, with what they say about each other during the primaries that comes back to bite the, the final nominee in the general election, do they think that we are stupid and we will forget? Well, here's the problem. They do, and we know it. So if I know that they believe that I'm stupid, that I have short-term memory issues, I don't trust them. I don't trust them simply because I know that they believe that I'm not going to remember and that I'm stupid. That's why one reason why I don't trust them. You think I'm done with the reasons why we can't and don't trust politicians? Wait, there's one more. One of the things that I find is that they are using procedures to achieve goals, to achieve political goals. And that goes back into not really trying to achieve consensus. They're really just trying to, to get majority. I could see that when, when they were trying to get the Speaker of the House elected. I mean, it, it was a farce. And I blame both parties, by the way. Um, when something needs to pass and they start attaching amendments to it and, and it ends up not passing because of the amendments, not to mention the way they talk about it, they go, the other party voted against it uh, and so they voted against, uh, I don't know, helping puppies, saving puppies. Well, they do because you attached an amendment that talks about gun control. They run filibusters because procedure allows you to run a filibuster, to achieve a goal, to run the clock on something and, and therefore make it fail. Instead of using procedure, they should really try and get consensus. They should really try to negotiate a win-win. They should really try to find solutions that are good for the American people. 
but they focus on getting what's uh, right for their party, for their voters, for the specific people who voted them into office so they can stay in office. I had zero value in being in office. I spent a lot of time. I spent a lot of effort. It was stressful. You always have people who are not happy with what you do and how you vote. I did that because it was a service. I don't see that in in most politicians. I see them doing a lot of things for show. Congressional congressional inquiries are, are used to state positions, to make speeches instead of getting to the truth and getting to a solution. And that's one of the main components, by the way, of the no BS component. Are you doing things for the right reasons or are you, or are you doing them for show? One more reason why we can't trust them and we don't. Okay, this went way longer than I thought it would. Uh, so let, let me summarize it. Uh, first of all, everything that you saw there, I mean, if this was like George Santos, what he did was, was like a one person. So th- this is the behavior of one politician. It, it's not going to get generalized. But, but the way that what I described here, there are very few politicians that do not feed into that definition. There are a few that don't. But, but most of them, that's how they behave. This is how they talk about each other during the primaries. And they think we're stupid. And uh, they think we're going to forget. And then they change their minds. They make pledges. Their pledges are very absolute and very extreme. And and when so many of them are doing that, it hurts our trustfulness. And if you remember, the eighth law of trust is the trust is a two-person game. The level of trust that I have in a person, any specific politician, is the product of my trustfulness in politicians in general, and that specific politician's um, trust uh, uh, trustworthiness. But the more politicians behave the way they did, they do, and, and cause us to lose trust in them, we lose trustfulness in politicians in general, and this is why we rank them is so untrustworthy. Now, in this episode, I described the reasons why we trust politicians so little. I don't have answers. I really don't. Because I think that we, the voters, are causing this. And and we're the ones who will elect them only if they agree with us 100% with extreme positions and and we don't care about the goal the, the means the means justify the end we set the bed that we're going to have to sleep in this is why politicians are untrustworthy it's because we make them untrustworthy and any change in their trustworthiness, in the level of trust we're going to have in politicians, has to start with what we expect from them and we convey to them. If we let the primaries continue the way they are with them trashing each other and then changing their minds as soon as uh, it narrows down to one uh, party nominee, 
We're never going to trust them. We need to let them know that that is not okay. It starts with what we expect from them and we convey to them. At that point, I'm going to get off my soapbox. This is it for today. May trust be with you. This was The Trust Show. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.